0: Well, good morning, Zoe. It's good to be home. We, uh, my wife and I, we just landed from Branson, Missouri uh, yesterday. And we were there for a conference. Uh, leaders from across the nation were there. And we got to be a part of that. And I always find it interesting that whenever people meet me, they, you know, typically say, well, where are you from? And I always, you know, I'm, I'm from Minnesota. And whenever I say I'm from Minnesota, it's like people give me this weird look. Like we're all weird up here. Like... <laughs> They're like, why would you ever want to live in negative 17 degree weather? And I'm always just proud of where I'm from. I, I, I always say, hey, I'm, when I find out it's below zero, I just thoroughly enjoy putting on gym shorts, standing outside, <laughs> taking a deep breath, and filling my lungs with the cold air. And when they look at me, they think I'm a crazy lunatic, okay? But can I just say, can we give it up for ourselves for showing up to church on minus 17 degree <laughs> weather? Come on. We are built different, y'all. We're built different. Hey, I'm going to ask you if you could stand for today's reading of our passage, uh, where we're going in today's Word. Uh, It's just something we do around here. It doesn't make it special or anything like that, but just want to honor God's Word because that's what we share from every Sunday. I'm going to read from Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. It says that the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to... The land I will show you. God says this to Abram. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So, Abram went. God, help us to go when you tell us to go. Help us to be obedient when you speak to our lives. And God, I pray today would be a powerful revelation of the big story that you've played out for us to be a part of. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who are brand new, let me catch you up to speed real quick. We are smack dab in the middle of a series called The Big Story. And the reason why we're telling you about the big story from the beginning in Genesis, the beginning of our Bible, to the very end in Revelation, the reason why we're doing this is because all of us, doesn't matter who you are, All of us have this propensity to make it about us. And if we're not careful, how we will approach scripture is we will constantly think how God fits into my story versus how we fit into his story. And so the reason why we're doing something called the big story and taking you through scripture is because the reality is it's never about how God fits in my story, our propensity to default to us. But it's been all along how we fit into God's story. And so we're excited about this series. If you missed last week, you can watch the message online. I'll give you a three-minute or less synopsis of what Pastor Greg shared. He opened up the Bible to Genesis 1, the very beginning book. And it says in verse 1, in the beginning, God. And Greg right away was showing the point of what God was trying to say to us If you knew what was going on in the near ancient East back then, there was many gods in culture. People believed in multiple many gods. And what Genesis 1 is saying is way different than what culture was saying by saying, in the beginning, God. One God, okay? Pointing us to one hope, one person. It's revolutionary. And then you see how God made things and created things, and it was beautiful. It was pure. And then he made man in his own image and called it very good. And then Pastor Greg showed us how man felt, fell to sin, did the very thing God said not to do. The enemy came and said, did God really say, questioning what God had already said, and they fell into sin. And for the very first time, we see man begin to feel afraid, scared, ashamed, naked, and feeling in a place of vulnerability in which they've never felt before. I think you and I can relate quite a bit to the whole shame, fear, and or hiding. We see Adam and Eve, they hide in the garden when they hear God walking, and then God does something unique. He says three words. He goes, where are you? Where are you? And if you were here last Sunday, you saw Pastor Greg lead us to why that was important, Our big so what from last week was this, is God pursues sinners. God goes after sinners. He could have rejected them. He could have annihilated them. He could have made them feel bad. But in that moment in Genesis 3, God gives hope in the middle of hopelessness. He shows up and gives a promise in the middle of feeling afraid and naked and ashamed. And God says in Genesis 3 that there will be one who comes and crushes the serpent's head. It was a prophetic prophecy of someone named Jesus who was going to come and save humanity. And so this message I've titled, From Where Are You to I Choose You. We go from a statement of God saying, Where are you? And now I want to lead you to the next portion in the big story of how God actually says, I choose you doesn't it feel great to be wanted? Doesn't it feel great to be chosen? Like someone notices you, someone chooses you. Uh, We have all kinds of scenarios of this, don't we? I mean, some of us, you have a boss who has 100 employees that he manages. You're one of them. And if your boss would just remember your name, it would like blow your mind. It shows that he knows you. He he cares for you, right? I mean, I don't know for you growing up, we would have recess outside, right? And they'd say, hey, go play whatever sport you want. Well, how would they figure out the teams? There'd be two captains, right? The captains would choose a number from someone behind their back, whoever got closest or got it right, they would be the one that picked the team, right? I don't know if you ever experienced the feeling, but when the captain looks at you and says your name, it makes you feel good. It, it feels good to be chosen. I don't know, A- anybody here ever heard of Skateville before? It's the roller skating rink right over here. <laughs> is Skateville still going, by the way? I, is it still an opera? I see some people right here. Skateville is this roller skating rink right here in Burnsville, okay? And uh, by the way, I find it really interesting. Who in the world invented roller skates? Like, can you? Like, think, think about that for a second. I kind of get the picture of some college kids hanging out in their dorm room really bored, okay? And they find like a wood pallet and decide to put wheels underneath it and push their friends down the hall. And then all of a sudden they get this grand idea, oh my word, let's make roller skates. This would revolutionize everything. I mean, think about the concept of roller skates. Who thought putting wheels under your feet was a good idea? I mean, I think about that, right? And so I remember a time in elementary school when I was a sixth grader. Okay, our elementary school went from kindergarten to sixth grade. And we had a field trip to Skateville in Burnsville. And the best part of every Skateville day was when the DJ came on and made an announcement. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's that time. It's now time for the snowball. Ladies, go to one end of the rink. Boys, get to the other end of the rink, and you get to choose your partner for a slow skate. <laughs> and all the little sixth grade boys and girls would scurry to their sides and rollerblade over, and the nerves started to be pent up, and you started to get sweaty, and then all of a sudden a slow song would come on that the DJ would pick for my generation. It was like, and I swear. By the moon and the stars in the sky, and you got, some of you don't. It's okay. Some of you don't. It's okay. Some of you don't know. It's, okay. you don't know it. it's all right. And so I was on one end of the rink. The girls were on the other end of the rink. Typically, the boys would get the head start and go first, and the boys would skate around and pick their girl. And maybe you're a female in here, and you've been a part of the snowball at skate field and you can remember. That very day in your head, when some boy went up to you, held out his hand, and it either made you repulse in your head because you hated him, or you felt like, ah oh my word, I just died and went to heaven, because you felt chosen. You felt chosen. Or I remember the DJ switched it up. He said, "All right, boys and girls, we're gonna switch it up. Get to your sides, girls. It's your turn to go pick a boy." And so there we were, backed up to the side, we got our roller skates on, and there's just a difference between boys and girls, y'all, in sixth grade. There's a difference. I remember a bunch of us in sixth grade, we all liked the same girl. Like, we all thought one girl was the beautiful girl, and this girl, I think she knew she was pretty, y'all. Like, I think she knew she had all these boys who liked her. And so rather than coming around on the first time and picking a boy, she decided to taunt all of us and do a lap. Like just kind of like stare at us. Just kind of do a lap and kind of got us antsy. And I'll never forget the, the, the slow song was playing. The disco ball is lit. Her face is all glittery from the disco ball. Her hair's blowing in the wind. It's like slow motion, okay? And we're all standing there, all of us boys. And we're like, come on, pick me. Come on, pick me. And true story, she slows down, stops right in front of me. And holds out her hand like this. She chooses me. In that moment, I was like, yeah, kick down. But on the inside, I was sweaty mess. I was freaked out. My skates were probably running into hers. It was awkward, okay? But the reality is, it's true of all of us. We love to be chosen. We love to be chosen, don't we? I mean, we love to be noticed. We, we love to be seen. We love to be heard. I mean, for some of us who are married, we love it when our spouse does something uncommon. Why? Because it reinforces the idea that I've chosen you. We love it. And today I want to continue on in the big story showing you exactly how God chose us. This is important to see because what you're going to find out is something powerful that God does to us I just shared with you in the beginning as we stood up in Genesis 12 and shared you the passage we're going to preach from. And if you're taking notes today, the first thing I want to point out, is very clear, is number one, it's not about you. it's, It's really not about you and I. And you might be thinking, well, Micah, you just buttered me up to feel gushy and good about being chosen. And now you're telling me it's not about me? Yep, I am. And where do we see this? But look at the language in Genesis chapter 12. A lot of us can internalize it and miss what God's trying to do in verse one. Listen to what he says, he says, I will show you. God's saying this, I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will make your name great. I will bless you. I will curse those. It's like God's trying to say all along to us, it's not about you. But it's about me and what I'm going to do for you. And when we read this, we love the passages of blessing, don't we? We love hearing how we're going to be blessed and great. We love hearing that. But here's where the mistake comes in. Is we live in a society that says it's not about God, but it's all about us. And we take everything that God said and we twist it to make it think it's all about us. Let me just give you a different perspective. It's like when God says to Abram, I will show you. And we tell God, no, no. It's okay, I'll I'll, I'll show myself. I think I got it. I'm good. God says, hey, I will make you into a great nation. No, it's okay. I know how to build my platform. I know how to build my business. I'm okay. I got it. God says, hey, I will make your name great. Oh, don't worry. I already know how to make my name great. People don't know this, but I actually buy followers for my social media handles, and I buy likes. So when people visit my page, they see how my name is great. Literally, we live in a society right now that we love to make ourselves great. And all the while, God is saying, I will do it. I want to do this. This is a promise. I want to be this in your life. I will bless those. And it's like, no, it's all right. I got it. I'll kind of hoard things for myself. I'll never make it about anyone else. As long as my family's good, then I'm okay. And then God says, I will curse those who curse you. And then with that one, we're like, Okay, I like that one. That one's cool. Someone's going to mess with me? God, you, you, you take care of them. You handle them. Someone's going to come at me, cancel me? Okay, God, you can go ahead and do that. I like that one. Isn't it funny how we always make it about us? And all the while, God is saying, it's not about you. One of the dangers that really kind of is a red flag in my mind is whenever I meet someone and they tell me all the amazing things they've done, because where is the room for what God can do? What I found is when we build our life about us, we quickly see how frail and fragile it is. But when we build our life upon what God can do, it's unstoppable. And it lasts way beyond you. Well, yeah, I can give a few examples of how we make it all about us. I mean, it's pretty easy. I think of, I love Starbucks. Anybody here love Starbucks? The Starbucks sugars? I mean, I... I I love, I have a specific drink order, y'all. Okay, Very specific. And I've talked to baristas before. Sometimes they get orders like this. Maybe you're one of them. Um, I like a latte, 145 degrees, half-calf, one pump of classic syrup, Um, almond milk, please, not regular milk. Make sure it's extra hot, please. And then on top of that, put some little foam with a little heart in it, and then we go pick up the drink. And we brought our own thermometer with us to make sure it was 145 degrees. And we put the thermometer and It says 135. And we all turn into Karens. <laughs> no! You made it wrong! And we bring it in. You made it wrong. We make it all about us, don't we? I'm stepping on some toes right now. <laughs> oh! We make it about us. That's the worst when a drink's made wrong. It's not fun. Or how about this one? Um, Greg, um, the temperature in the house is 67 degrees. You know I like it at 72. I mean, love you, Amber. (laughs) (laughs) Love you, Amber. No, one outfit, Amber. We have two services now. I'm only getting you one outfit, not two outfits, okay? Two services doesn't mean I get you more things, okay? Just one thing, all right? I picked on her in the first service, and now she's trying to work me for more things. Not going to happen, okay? The point is, is we like making it about us. Hence, give me two outfits instead of one. We love making it about us. It's just our nature. It's our nature. Thank you, Pastor Greg. Thank you. It is our nature. We always default to us. And this isn't any out-of-the-ordinary thing for Jesus, you want to talk about Jesus for a second, look at how Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter 4. It's pretty blatant, y'all. In Matthew chapter 4, look what the devil says to Jesus. He tempts him. He says, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor, and Satan says this, all this I will give you, he said, if you'll just bow down and worship me. In other words, he brought Jesus to the highest peak, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, all the wealth, all the money, all the power, all the fame, everything that could be wanted. And he looks at Jesus and says, all this can be yours if you'll just bow down and worship me. You know what Satan was trying to get Jesus to do? To buy into the lie that it was all about him and not about his heavenly father. That Jesus could somehow... Have his name be made great by what Satan could give. How many of us constantly bow down to Satan for a temporary gratification only to realize that the very thing we bow down to is all owned by God anyway? The very tempting that Satan used with Jesus was foolish to me. It's funny to think about because all the kingdoms he was offering them, God already owned it all anyway. God was in the beginning before Satan ever was. God is more powerful. Isn't it interesting how that happens? And then Jesus' response is so beautiful. He just reminds Satan, hey, hold on a second. Get away from me, number one. But number two, it's written, I'm to worship the Lord my God and serve him only. God said he would make a way. God said he would do the blessing. God said he would do the cursing. God said he would take care of this. So here's the deal. My worship will never be bowing down to what the enemy offers. My worship will always be to serve and love my father, to love God. Why? Because it's not about you and I. But leads me to my next point, number two. It's all about him. It's all about him. And this is where we see this in the book of Genesis. Remember when God shows up and says, hey, I will bless you, I will show you, I will make you a great nation. We love all of that. And Abram's wondering, hey, when's this going to happen to me? When is this all going to take place? And in Genesis chapter 15, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. But in Genesis 15, God shows up again and speaks to Abram. And Abram replies by saying, hey, God, look, what can you give me since I remain childless? Like, look, God, you, you said you'd bless me, but I don't have a child. Here's the deal. When God showed up in Genesis 12 saying, I will make you into a great nation, it would mean he'd have to have a child. But Abram was 75 years old when God showed up. You're not, not smart. You can understand that at 75 years old, you can't have a child. And Abram's pretty smart. He goes, God, you said I'd have a great family. I have no son. What's going to happen? And God responds to him by saying this. Then God said, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside. This is beautiful. And he said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. In other words, God says, Abram, I know you don't have a son, but here's the deal. You are going to have a son. Let's fast forward a little bit, 20 some years. His son was Isaac. That's where you get Abraham and Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. It's where you have Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons who become the the 12 tribes of Israel. Here you see a family being birthed. Abram doesn't see it yet. And this is what God does to prove. Because Abram says this. It says that he believed God and credited to him as righteousness. And then Abram, being smart as he was, just like what you and I would have done in verse 7. In verse 8 he goes, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? I'm 75, how will I know that I'll actually have a son? Because to my end and my wife Sarah, it looks impossible. How? I mean, I believed you the first time when I left everything, but I, God, you need to give me a sign. You need to show me something that you're going to come through. And then this is what God does. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old along with the dove and a young pigeon. Verse 10, Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite of each other. When I just read that, a lot of that just went whoop right over your head. And you're like, dude, this is weird. I'm about to explain something to you that's one of the most powerful things. God said, you're gonna have a son. Look up at the stars in the sky. Your family's gonna be bigger than that. I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna do it. So let's enter a covenant together. Let's do something that binds this to prove to you that I won't ever lie to you. Do you want to know what the most serious of all covenants were? A covenant is different than a contract. Uh, Some of you might want DirecTV or Comcast. So what do you do? You call them, right? You say, hey, I'd love to sign up, get TV. And Comcast says, okay, let's draw up a contract. But at any point in time in that contract, you can call them. Hey, I'm done watching TV. My wife's yelling at me saying I'm watching too much sports. It's ruining our life. I got to quit. And what does Comcast say? Oh, dude, we love your marriage. We don't need your money. We're a huge company. Okay? The point is, is you can get out at any time. The covenant God's about to do with Abram, this is what ends up happening. He tells them, he says, go get animals, specific ones. Cut them in half. This is now called the blood covenant. This is where it gets crazy, y'all. This is what they do. I'm going to help illustrate to you what God did with Abram that day and help show you how this fits in the big story. This will blow your mind. Back then, when we read about things, it feels really weird because it's like that's jacked up. But to them, it made sense. This was how they did things. But to help illustrate this, I need to bring up an animal on stage to show you. Did anybody bring a heifer, a ram, or a goat today, or a pigeon? Anna, did you bring one? No? Does does Alex have one? Okay, he left it at home. Great. I'll go to a backup plan. Okay? I brought a stuffed animal today, if you want to throw it up on stage. Thank you, Amber. I brought an animal today to show you what they did. All right? Uh, I did this for a junior high group one time, and I swear I heard a junior high girl start crying. Okay? So, um, But... (laughs) I want to show you what happened and how they did it, okay? (laughs) Someone help Tom over there. That would be the worst tear of them all, by the way, right there. Okay, we'll just pretend this is good. Like, that's half and that's half. True story. Listen to me. This is what they would do. This is exactly what happened when God said, I'm going to prove to you that everything I just said is true. They would cut the animals in half. The lesser of the two parties would go get the animals and prepare the covenant, the blood covenant, okay? So who's the lesser party in the story? Abram is, because he ain't God. He cuts him in half, and this is what would happen. Both parties would have to walk through together. They would stand in the blood, and they would out loud say this together. If any of us don't follow through on our end of the covenant, May what's been done to the blood of these animals happen to me. Don't miss this. Abram knew he was going to follow behind God. God set up this covenant. But then this is powerful. In verse 12, it says, As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then in verse 17, it says, When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Here's why this is so powerful. You must be thinking, wait a second. Wasn't Abram supposed to walk through with God? Yeah, he was. Well, how come Abram didn't walk through with God? Why was he put to sleep? Here's why. Because God knew That if Abram was to step into a covenant, in order for Abram to fulfill his part, he would have to be sinless. And God knew that Abram was just like you and I, a sinner known to sin, born as a sinner. God knew that about Abram, so he spared his life. And you might be thinking, well, uh, uh, a smoking pot and a fire torch passed through. Yeah, two things passed through. Who was it? God. Fire and smoke never represented a human in the Old Testament. Fire and smoke always represented the presence of God. What God was showing us is this, is God knew to rescue the world, God knew to rescue humanity. It couldn't be Abram who saved the world, but it would be a God who says, it's not about you, it's all about me, I will do it for you. I will step through on your behalf. I will show you mercy, because I know you can't save yourself. I will make a way for you where there seems to be no way. It is powerful when you see it. Hold on. It gets even better, y'all. From that day forward, the blood covenant that God did on behalf of Abram, this is crazy. From that day forward, every day, the priests did something called perpetual sacrifices. Okay? This is what they would do. they, A priest would go to the top of the temple with a shofar, a ram's horn at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. every day, every weekend, every holiday, they would take their horn, and they would blow it over the city, and you'd hear this horn shoot out over the whole city. And when the horn would die down, there was another priest down below with a lamb, and they would cut the lamb's throat. And to us, this sounds jacked up. It sounds messed up. Why did they do this? Let me tell you why they did this. Is because every time a person heard the corn, the the call, it reminded every person who heard it, don't forget, God said He would bless us. Don't forget, God said He would make us a family. Don't forget, God said He would do it. In other words, the people would say this God save us. God save us and every time, every day at 9am and at 3pm they would hear the horn and they would be reminded of what God did for Abram powerful you think that's powerful, it gets way better if you were to open your Bible to Mark chapter 15 you would see the account of what Mark says, this is when it gets really crazy y'all, let's fast forward 1800 years from when Abram Had a blood covenant with God. There was someone named Jesus Christ who came into the world, born of a virgin. His earthly visit was merely a visitation, not an origination. Jesus that day was punched in the face. He had whips whipped in his back, a crown of thorns put on his head. Don't miss this, this is crazy. Jesus carries a cross up a mountain to get crucified. What does it say in Mark 15, verse 25? Don't miss this. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him, which means this. On the day of the Passover, the priest would go up as always, bah, ding, ding, go to his feet. Jesus being crucified exactly at the exact time when God made a promise to Abram 1,800 years ago that he would make a family, that he would bless a family. And that family that God made, you see what happens in Mark chapter 15, just a few verses later. This is crazy. It says this in verse 33. At noon, he's already been on the cross for three hours. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until when? three in the afternoon at 3 p.m. the final words jesus says on a cross a horn at 3 p.m. jesus yells out it is finished and in that moment a new covenant was established that would bring the people's minds back to a spot of what God promised Abram, but now no more lambs would need to be slaughtered. Now blood would not need to flow everywhere because there was a final covenant once and for all that God would create through his son Jesus to fulfill a promise 1,800 years ago that whoever would believe in Jesus would not perish but have everlasting life. That is powerful, y'all. Only Jesus can make a way where there doesn't seem to be a way. And just how God stepped through a blood covenant with a smoking pot and a fiery torch. You and I were the ones deserving of the death that Jesus took, but just how God put Abram in a dark sleep and didn't let him pass, God knew it would have to be Jesus that could bring total restoration to the whole world. It's why we no longer need to cut lambs. That's why you no longer need to do this because everything was fulfilled when the pierces went in at 9 a.m. and Jesus closed it all up at 3 p.m. by saying, it is finished. It's powerful. You want to know what's beautiful about Jesus? He never leaves his audience in a way of feeling hopeless. But he leaves us with the hope-filled message with some of the final words on the cross. If you finish Mark 15, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when we read our Bibles, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For us, we're like, oh, poor Jesus. He's forsaken. Oh, poor Jesus. You want to know what Jesus was trying to do? He was trying to do what he's always done. Jewish rabbis, all they had to do was speak one verse of a text. And the listeners knew the whole text they were referring to. Jesus wasn't pointing out, oh, poor me. He was pointing the audience to listen to a message that he wanted to leave them with. Listen to the message that Jesus leaves with everyone that day when he's on the cross. In Psalms 22, the very first verse in Psalms 22 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't you see? He's pointing them to something. In verse 6, it says, but I am a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. Time out. When we read our Bible, we're thinking, Jesus just said he's a worm? That's awkward. Here's what we don't see. The Hebrew word for worm is the same exact word for crimson. Why is that important? Because scripture also says that he became like crimson, like sin, who knew no sin. And it says right here, but I am a worm, but I am but crimson and not a man scorned by everyone, despised by the people. Here's what Jesus was trying to get you and I to remember. When you read Psalm 22 in its entirety, in verse 27, it says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Verse 30, posterity will serve him. This is powerful. Future generations will be told about the Lord. Verse 31, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. He was trying to point the people that day to say, hold on. My death might scare you, but in three days, there will be a resurrection that shows to the world he has done it. No longer staying in death and sin. It's the reason why you and I can be free. We don't need to be in bondage to the lust. We don't need to be in bondage to the lies and the addictions. But God made a way when he said, it is finished. God made a way to know that he has done it. It's not about you and I. And the quicker we realize it's not about us and it's what God can do and what God has done, it changes everything. Because then you stop trusting yourself and you start putting your trust in him. Which leads me to my big so what of all of today's message. He first chose you. Now will you choose him? feels good to be chosen, doesn't it? And this is where the gospel comes in. Abram was a nobody. In fact, Paul describes him as unfaithful in one of the letters he writes. The point all along is God coming to man to choose him. You see, God went from a place of saying, where are you, to now saying, I choose you. And just before Jesus left his disciples, he looked at them said, don't you ever forget, I first loved you before you ever loved me, and I first chose you before you ever chose me. We get to start from a place of his choosing in our life, not having to earn it. You and I can be set free every day by choosing him. I wonder how many of us have been choosing him, or how many of us have been choosing our own way, our own intellect, our own thoughts, Everything I just told you is foolishness in the world's eyes. But it is powerful to the one who recognizes it's the way, the truth, and the life. It will set you free and transform your marriage. It will heal you. It will give you a hope in hopeless times and countries. And don't you see? This gospel was never just meant for a Jewish people, it was meant for the nations. Scripture doesn't say Israel will bow down and worship God, it says the nations will. The family he chose to start through Abram meant the entire world, that whoever might believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. When God does all of that for us, doesn't it demand a response to give everything to him? When God chooses us like that, doesn't it demand a response of saying, God, you can have all of me, you can have everything? Pastor Greg ended last week's message with the song, saying you can have all of me. And I think it's only fitting as we go through the big story again that we tell God, yep, you can have all of me again.